broadcasting from Chico, California. This is the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast, where we discuss NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fishery science and management, conservation, and more. No better, fish better. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. This episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast is brought to you by California Trout. Working throughout the state to ensure we have resilient wild fish thriving in healthy waters for a better California. Support Caltrout's innovative science-based work by becoming a member or donating today at caltrout.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Nick Hanna, here with Chad Alderson. Chad, how we doing, buddy? Oh, um, good. We've had a bit of a hiatus yeah i think about five weeks yeah it's been a little while yeah. hogan hogan's been uh, towing the line for us though and i appreciate that hogan we both been uh nick and i have personally been pretty busy a lot of stuff going on in our lives and we needed a break we were on like i think we'd put out 158 straight episodes and i just i was getting a little burned to be honest and yeah. um you know hogan stepped up perfect timing and uh we're, we're back at it and now there's other contributors to the podcast you guys will be hearing from so it's going to be cool. You're going to have more content, not less. More is better in the U.S. economy, right? Isn't that the the yeah. mantra? Yep, yep. Um, I like less is more. Yeah, I do too. But yeah, this isn't a political podcast. Though, so <laughs> nope. let's just push we're going right to keep it that. fun, fun fishing stuff. Um, I'm actually really excited about this podcast. I'm going to introduce um, our guest here in a second. But um, before I do, you know, this podcast is going to be about. Um, Western Rivers Conservancy. And, and to me, I feel like a lot of people don't know about WRC. And, um, you know, we, we hear about Cal Trout, who um, obviously is our sponsor and, and uh, T- uh, Trout Unlimited. Um, so I'm just excited to hear what um, we have the founder and president uh, on the line and, and also the conservation director. But just to give you guys, and I'll introduce them here in a second, let them kind of introduce themselves and, and, and WRC. I'm sorry if I'm throwing that out there at Western Rivers Conservancy. Um, but just to give you guys a little um, just background about this um, nonprofit, it, it, it's amazing. Um, more than likely, they've touched a piece of water that you guys love and enjoy fishing. That you put your boots into. Yep, yep. Um, so a huge role in protecting, you know, some of our favorite watersheds and, and, and they acquire land and and work with local agencies and I'll let them talk a little bit more about that. But, um, you know, the Rio Grande, um, the Guala river, uh, the snake river, the John day, the Klamath, antelope, Scott, North Umpqua. These are all different, um, watersheds that these folks have, have, um, been able to, um, help and, preserve and and do some fantastic things with and and we're just excited to kind of hear more about um, what they've done and and what they have going on in the future so without without further ado i want to introduce um sue and josh well thanks you guys and i'm i'm so excited that you're back doing what you do because your podcasts are amazing we all love them and uh and we're really appreciative uh to have an opportunity to hang out with y'all and share uh, uh, what WRC is and does, and um, and and you know, Nick, you're absolutely right. Everybody knows a river we've worked on, and we've we've just always kind of liked to fly under the radar That's and uh, yep. and let our work speak for itself. And and it turns out in today's world, uh, you need a little visibility just so people know who's who. So so Western Rivers Conservancy to start from the beginning. It's been around since 1988, 
and we work in the uh, 11 western states, west of the 100th meridian where dry farming begins. And, uh, and today we have projects in eight of those states, active projects. I think we have 26 or 27 or 28 projects right now. And so, so, uh, so chances are you guys are fishing on something we're working on right now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but what, who are we? You know, uh, we're about, uh, saving the great rivers of the West for the benefit of fish, wildlife, and people. And so, our tool, our singular tool, is land acquisition. We buy strategically important pieces of river land and permanently protect it. We put it in the hands of a long-term steward to be managed for conservation forever. And so that's that's a particular brand of conservation. You know, once it's in the hands of the long-term steward, there's restoration that takes place. You know, there's a lot of opportunities to. Uh, if if uh, if the landscape's intact, to keep it that way. If the landscape's been altered, to bring it back. Um, you know, it, it's every project has its own needs. And uh, and Josh, uh, who's been so I've been with Western River since you know the beginning of time. Uh, but uh, and but Josh has nearly been with Western Rivers uh, since the beginning of time. I think Josh started in what 1998 or so. Josh. 99. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so Josh, what did I leave out that you'd want to add for who we are and what we do? Well, I would add that in addition to setting up our projects for conservation uh, of habitat, as well as restoration, it also opens the door to access. And that's a really big deal when you're talking about being able to get folks out on rivers to enjoy it, whether it's for fishing or paddling or just spending time with your family. Yep. And, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because our mission, we have a dual mission. And one is uh, is ensuring that we have uh, ecologically functioning rivers. And the other is that uh, is that we deliver access where it's compatible with recreation. And those are those are co-equal in our in our mission. And and um, and when we started doing this work, we thought. Uh, the people who cared about our work were people who think about conservation. And, uh, and we really didn't understand until we were deep into our work that fishermen and, and hunters and anglers both mm-hmm. are understand the importance of our work as well as we do. Because for anyone who stood hip deep in the middle of the stream, they know exactly what a healthy river needs and they want it just as much as anyone else. And so, so we've discovered that our constituency and the people uh, that understand us and our mission best are, are those who spend time out there just like us. And so, so fishermen and hunters and, and for that matter, um, and any recreationist that spends time walking along a river are understand us best of all. Um, we're, we're going to go over a lot of the projects that you guys have, are working on past and present. Um, but before we do you, Sue, so you said something that, that kind of just stuck in my head and I want you to kind of unbox that a little bit. Uh, you said strategically important land. Um, can you kind of like explain what your parameters are, the strategic guidelines or, or, you know, milestones, if you will, for, for either doing a, a going through and, and getting a piece of land or not. 
Uh, well, you know, they're kind of two different questions, and I'd love to unbox it a little bit. Um, first of all, like what makes something strategically important, right? And and uh, and scientists will look at a stream and say, this is the most important one, this is the second most important one, and they'll do one to 101 in a row. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for us, uh, you know, you can't always do one or two or three, it, you know, the, the top priorities, but, but, um, but as long as uh, you can do number five and number 10 and number 15, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you're making a huge difference. It's just, you, you can't always start with the best. And so what is important? So for us, uh, headwaters, and estuaries are both critical for the health of river systems. You know, estuaries nourish uh, and are that mixing zone uh, for for nutrients for for fish, and uh, and of course, headwaters are are where where it's at. You know, the the, uh, the flow, clarity, quality, quantity of water, and and ensuring that it makes all the way downstream is a big deal. And then, of course. Uh, any of the confluences of streams to the main stem are uh, critical areas, and so you start to start to want to ensure that. Uh, and there's a, there's a, an author and, and uh, biologist uh, Jim Likatowicz. Uh Josh, where does Jim? What what's his credential? Uh, he's he used to be on our board, but he's kind of a fish guru, as is Peter Moyle. Yeah, he's an he's an esteemed uh, biologist, fish biologist that's been working in the Northwest for a very long time. A, a PhD scientist who's really pioneered uh, uh, an approach of looking at what are all the different life history needs, life history stage needs of of fish, and and chronicling those and realizing that you can't just work on one piece. You have to look at what is the 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 totality of the needs of these species. And, and then that gives you an idea of where to start working. And so, and the way Likitowicz describes it and why I'd like to talk about it is, um, is he describes it as links in a chain and they're life links and you need every link for the chain to work. And so, uh, a great example, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, but at our Blue Creek project, which is like at River Mile 14 or so, um, uh, from the ocean, the, the, the Klamath River uh, meets the sea uh, near Klamath, and 14 miles upstream is this uh, the first cold water tributary called Blue Creek. And at Blue Creek, 100% of the Schnook salmon stop at Blue Creek and lower their body temperatures by eight and a half degrees. From the ocean to River Mile 14 at Blue Creek, their body temperatures went up so much that they need to go into this cold water refuge that we created um, to lower their body temperatures so they can continue upstream. If that life chain link wasn't there, the run would go extinct. And there are links like that all the way up to their spawning grounds. And so when we talk about strategically important properties, we're talking about those life link areas, those hot spots that without them, the runs would cease to exist for one reason or another. Okay. So my takeaway is that when the, the, the strategy of whether or not you guys are going to go to do a project really goes lockstep with that, 
that particular target species life history and what you guys can do to kind of shepherd it along. Is that right? It is, but you know, there's a lot of different species. And so, uh, cause we're really more about river health and we use species just like a canary in a mine. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, because, uh, for us, the river system has to function as a whole. And so that, uh, the, the landscape, that supports rivers or rivers that support the landscapes, you know, it's kind of, you can't separate the two. They all need to have their needs met. They all, it needs to function. And so that one particular species, in this case, uh, you know, Chinook, that, that run wouldn't, uh, couldn't succeed without Blue Creek is, is an indicator of the importance of Blue Creek, but it isn't the reason why we pursued that project. That project's also very important for coho. Coho um, is uh, is a is a threatened species in that system, and the, and actually, Josh, is it threatened or endangered or right? I never get yeah, the quite right. I know Northern California, Southern Oregon coho are th- listed threatened. Yeah, and but for that same project, and this is just a really good example, uh, that project is critical for the marbled murrelet because uh, the murrelet depends on these assembled, these continuous landscapes. And because they, you know, fly in from the ocean going, you know, super fast and they just come barreling in and they need uh, big, wide, old growth tree limbs to kind of just crash land into. (laughs) And they and they and so they tend to follow river corridors and they and they need this continuous landscape of forested lands, preferably with late cereal forest, old growth forest. And um, and that's something that uh, hardly exists today. And um, and two of our projects, the Ho up on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and and, uh, and the Blue Creek project on the Klamath in Northern California, both of them we got involved for the river system and the health of the river. But it's a they are the two finest marble murrelet projects around. Is that true? Am I am I saying it right, Josh? You're you're absolutely right. And you know, to a murrelet, an old growth tree with a big huge limb. Where it can crash land and and uh, and rear its young nests, uh, that's akin to a spawning gravel for a salmon. It, it kind of occupies the same place in, in their life history stages. And so, hmm. murrelets need they follow rivers upstream the same way a, a, a salmon or a steelhead would, and they arrive at the place where they're gonna where they're gonna rear their young. In the murrelet's case, it's a big old growth tree. In the salmon's case, it's some nice clean gravel that's got some great cold oxygenated water flowing through it uh, but they they both use the system in a similar way but in totally different parts of it but it turns out like sue is saying if we conserve the whole the, the the strategic pieces then we end up benefiting both these species and so you might come into a project because you've heard hey this is the best wild chinook run remaining in the state of washington and so that's why you're out there looking at land but it turns out in the fruition of the project, you're working on one of the best Malibu Murelet, not to mention Spotted Owl projects uh, in the state of Washington as well. That's where we get that overlap. And that's why none of our projects are, are singular species. They're all about the health of the river system, the health of the ecosystem. Um, but you always need to have focus and the species give us focus. Yeah. And then you get the collateral benefit by just going out, you know, focusing on one. Yeah. Right, exactly, and so and so that was the other part of your question was you know what are your, what does a project look like? What are the milestones? You know what, what what the heck do you guys do? Or at least that's the question I heard. <laughs> and 
And so, uh, and the answer is, is, is we were really um, conservation real estate people because we, I recognize the uh, lands that are important in a river system and work with willing sellers to, uh, to gain control of that land, enter into a contract for that landscape or for that property. And then we, um, if we need to, we'll buy and hold it with uh, short-term money, usually a loan from a friendly foundation or individual. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll try to find takeout funding, permanent conservation funding that'll allow us to permanently protect those lands and put them in the hands. And most importantly, put them in the hands of a long-term steward who's going to take care of the property according to our conservation vision forever. And, uh, and those stewards, uh, are pretty varied. They go from, because everybody, the, the, one of the criteria is you need to be, you need to know what you're doing. You need to know how to manage land. You need to understand forestry and you need to understand the um, uh, fish biology and you need to understand the resource values of the property that you would be owning and managing. And then you need the resources. You need the depth to be able to manage those lands and to be able to manage them in perpetuity. And so, wow, the perpetuity is a, is a long time. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and so, uh, so we try to find, um, people who, who have the ability to deliver that kind of certainty or a succession strategy that will ensure that kind of certainty. And so we'll work with the federal government. We'll work with the, you know, all four of the natural resource agencies, whether it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Forest Service or the BLM, um, to be long-term stewards and we'll ensure that there's a, overlay a management overlay for that property that uh that is consistent with the conservation vision we share and but we'll work with states we'll work with counties we'll work with um, land trusts and uh and we'll work with private individuals with conservation easements Mm. um as if that's the appropriate strategy for that area can I can I think of the money side of this as kind of like a nonprofit REIT real estate investment trust? I'm thinking more of a charitable remainder trust. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I would. You know, maybe maybe it's more like a REIT in the sense that um, we are we're we are marrying uh, funding that's interested in delivering conservation, long-term conservation, we're marrying that funding with lands. Yeah. And sometimes that funding exists. Like, you know, there, there's, uh, you guys probably heard and, uh, f- and were uh, part of supporting Congress passing the Great Americans Outdoor Act, mm-hmm. uh, which, which permanently funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And the Land and Water Conservation Fund uses offshore oil leasing revenues to to allow the natural resource agencies, the Forest Service or the Fish and Wildlife Service, to acquire lands for the purposes of conservation. And, And that fund has been successfully operating for more than 50 years, and it sunsetted a few years ago. And, uh, and, uh, and the entire conservation community, land conservation community has been working to ensure that 
that would become a permanent source of funding. And and just last month, uh, it, Congress passed and uh, and the president signed into law the Great Americans Outdoor Act that allows us to have funding to acquire lands for conservation, um, to to uh, fund it permanently to the tune of uh, $950 million a year. So that's exciting stuff. And, uh, and Nick, I forgot why I got off on that. It was Chad talking about REITs. Chad. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, the REIT. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So exactly. And yeah. How, what about you guys? What about your organization makes it possible for you to get these deals done where others can't? Well, I was going to, I wanted to bring an example of Blue Creek up because uh, I think there's a story to tell there with, that has to do with carbon and kind of using that, you know, as a purchasing power to, and I don't know the details, maybe you can go into that a little bit more soon. Is that, that, does that align with what what he's talking about? Yeah, it sure does. Well, what I, uh, so, so we kind of bundle it all up and think of it as conservation finance. And uh, because, you know, marrying conservation dollars up with a project is, is easy peasy. And, uh, and what's, what's difficult is when there, there isn't enough money to go around. Like, how do you do these really important projects? And there isn't just a pot of money sitting there for everybody to go use. And, uh, and so, so uh, why Western Rivers is successful uh, in part is because we're uh, creative and tenacious, and uh, and because Blue Creek, which is the, a great example of this, was a was a sixty million dollar, forty seven thousand acre project. So, in forty seven thousand acres is three times the size of the island of Manhattan. It's it's you know a big big swath of the landscape, and sixty million. Dollars is a is a heavy lift for um, accomplishing a conservation project, and uh, and so we knew that this land had to be protected. We knew that without Blue Creek, the salmon run would cease to exist, and so we had to figure it out. And so that's that's what we do best. So how we figured it out was we took these non-traditional sources of funding. We went and saw that there was a, uh, a loan fund for the, out of the Clean Water Act, and uh, it was intended for non-point source pollution. And we said, hey, our project, if it were harvested instead of conserved, contributes to non-point source pollution. We were eligible for that loan, and we went and we tapped into that fund. It had uh, hardly been done for the purposes of conservation. It's really intended for building sewage treatment plants and water filtration plants and bricks and mortar kind of stuff. And uh, but but we we you know thread the needle and we uh, secured uh, a zero percent interest twenty five year loan through that fund to buy the first portion of Blue Creek and you know, essentially free money. It was amazing. But then that was only, you know, the first 20 million and we had 40 million more to go and we didn't have very much in the way of public funding sources available to us. And so then we uh, saw that people were developing um, carbon projects that instead of harvesting trees, you could do a conservation overlay and 
monetize that by capturing carbon and uh, and developing a carbon project that um, puts a carbon management overlay on the property and selling the carbon on the property on the open market. And the carbon market, when we started back in 2008, wasn't a very proven market. A lot of people thought it was a smoke and mirrors kind of thing. But it turns out it's funded um, probably 20% of our project has been funded through uh, the sale of carbon. And so we don't cut trees. We leave them standing and we generate revenues at the same time. So creative finance is what I call it. And then the final piece of creative financing that we did was to take another non-traditional financing tool, which was in, which is called New Markets Tax Credits. And New Markets Tax Credits are like, are like uh, historic tax, tax credits. It's, it's, a, it's just a U.S. Treasury program that's intended to um, lower, you know, level the playing field and allow uh, projects to be economically uh, viable in areas where it's tough to be economically viable. And, uh, and this Blue Creek project is in a severely economically depressed census tract, which is a criteria for that program. And we were able to, uh, through a lot of lawyering, and I must say a lot of brain damage, you guys, uh, we uh, were able to generate about 20% of the uh, overall purchase price of the project through New Markets tax credits. So, so it's a long-winded answer saying one of the reasons why Western Rivers is successful is because we figure out how to get it done, and it isn't uh, always easy. It sounds like you have a, a group of smart attorneys on your side. Well, we know where to find them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, yeah. That's awesome. Well, you guys have been at this a a super long time. Uh, Maybe Josh, this might be an answer that you can, you can dive into what, what stands out to you? Um, as far as it just a transformation, you know, on some of these projects that you've just seen, you know, after the stewards have gotten involved in managing this land and after you guys have acquired it, what are some of the things that you've seen stand out um, and that you're excited, excited about? You know, we've, we've had some really remarkable results stem from our work. And, and one uh, great example is our work uh, up here in Oregon on the western flanks of Mount Hood on the Sandy River where we were able to partner with the local utility, Portland General Electric, PGE, with a number of other stakeholders and, and the BLM. And uh, PGE removed two dams, making the Sandy free-flowing from the glaciers of Mount Hood all the way out to the Columbia Gorge and, and onto the Pacific. And we were able to acquire over 5,000 acres of land. And this is just 25 miles from downtown Portland. Over 5,000 acres of land along 13 miles of the Sandy four miles of Little Sandy and significant chunks of the Bull Run and the Salmon River, other important tributaries in the basin. That work set the stage for about a decade of intensive restoration work. And in, since that time, they've seen returns of coho and steelhead increase by, in some cases, 100%, and other cases, over 250%. And that kind of result is just remarkable. And, uh, and that's the kind of work that we like to accomplish. That's the kind of work that you look 
you look back and see how our work was acted as a catalyst for all this work that happened in, in the decade after and, uh, and just resulted in some of the strongest recovery efforts that we've seen for salmon and steelhead on the West Coast. No, that's fantastic. Hey, Josh, just out of curiosity, um, in each of those problem spaces that you guys went into do this restoration work, was there was there like one conservation low hanging piece of fruit that you guys always could pluck or was it different each time? And if so, what was that thing? You know, we always, we have two different types of, of, of properties that we try to prioritize. And one is where, where's the, the highest functioning habitat right now? Where do you have, whether it's side channel habitat with, with great woody debris where, you know, you can get fish in to rear, filling some critical life history stage, say for, for coho that need to overwinter. And that's the limiting factor and, and, and their populations rebounding. If, if that is there and functioning, but at threat because it could be logged or developed um, into home sites, that's where we go first. The second place we go is where there's habitat that could be readily restored into um, being high functioning. And, and uh, if you're working on a, on a basin-wide project as we were, uh, on the Sandy or, or as we are, say, at Blue Creek, then there's gonna, it's going to be a, a, a mixed bag of both. And so we always try to start with, with, with what is, what is the, the most functioning. And, and, uh, but you also have to go where the opportunity lies. And, and so we take a very broad, com- comprehensive approach, knowing where these different opportunities are and realizing them as they become available. Well, and, and if I could chime in... Uh... You know, you, I really, it's what's the before picture and the after picture? Like what, what really changes? Right. right. And, and so, so at Blue Creek, which is just a really great example because it's so big, you, you, we really are having this tremendous impact that reverberates through the entire river system. But at Blue Creek, it, before we bought it, was an industrial forest landscape. So it's a monospecies. It's harvested the way industrial uh, forestry companies harvest, you know, in, in whatever is legal, legally allowable clear-cut uh, regime. And, uh, and the um, consequences of those kinds of harvests, and, and by the way, some of our best partners are uh, timber companies. We're, we, we, you know, you need, we all need trees. We all use wood. Timber harvest isn't bad, but it needs to be done, you know, in places where it's sensitive in a way that it's compatible with continuing to have healthy streams. And so in the case of this landscape, we were fearful that these kinds of industrial forest activities would result in tremendous sedimentation and potentially overwhelm the road system and create a catastrophic road failure, which would fill in Blue Creek. It would the sedimentation would take away the capacity of Blue Creek to hold fish. And uh and so so that it's that fear of a catastrophic road blowout and erosion that comes from industrial forestry that made us want to take that landscape and change its management regime to protect the integrity of that stream. And so before it was an industrial landscape, and that, in addition to sedimentation and the potential catastrophic blowout, uh, there's also the impact on uh, critters like the uh, Humboldt Martin, 
clear cuts create uh, have this cascade effect where it ends up that predators come in that will um, diminish the Humboldt Martin population and and so uh, so that kind of industrial forestry management regime uh, ends up being catastrophic for the Humboldt Martin which is either endangered or threatened uh, uh, but a, but a critical species and um, and so that was the before the after. Is that uh, is that some of the Blue Creek uh, the Blue Creek watershed will be managed as a salmon sanctuary, and the only forestry activities that will take place there are to achieve an old growth forest. So there'll be some thinning, and there'll be some instead of a monoculture, there'll be some um, multi species plantings. And we'll let those trees grow and achieve a late seral forest status, an old growth status. And then outside of the Blue Creek watershed, but still within this landscape, we're moving from an industrial forestry regime to a sustainable forestry regime. Fewer roads, letting the trees grow bigger, um, multi-species instead of monospecies, and mimicking more of a natural regime. Uh, and and actually, I'm really out of my depth here. Josh is the expert on this stuff, <laughs> but that's you're the, doing a great job. Thank you. But that's the that's the before after, and and in this case, it's the Yurok tribe, who uh, whose homeland uh, center on this watershed, and it's actually their spiritual center, will be managing the forest and trying to mimic these more natural um, regimes. It, uh, so many things come to mind <clears throat> listening to you guys talk. I, I start the one that came up in my mind is the um, coho on our coast and all the work that's been done to um, restore those fisheries and from the logging, right? The logging had a big impact on, on a lot of those streams. And, and now people are going back and, and actually, you know, adding debris and adding habitat to, you know, that's going to provide the, the rearing for, for those coho to, to survive and live. So like that, that's another example to me. And, and maybe the Klamath, and maybe you guys can talk about that too a little bit, but the, um, that whole system, right. As a whole from, you know, going up all the way to the Scott River and, and the Williamson um, can can also, I'm sure, be talked about. Yeah. Well, Josh, do you want to take that? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you nailed it in terms of thinking about the system as a whole and and these different pieces. And Sue did a great job of articulating how Blue Creek plays this really critical function. And without these stepping stones of, of cold water refugia. Fish couldn't make it further up into the system, for example, um, all the way up into the Scott. Um, and the, the Scott River provides half of all the wild coho production in the entire state of California. Critically important stream. And we've been working on the Scott. Uh, we acquired two and a half miles of the South Fork Scott, a piece of property that has some really critical water rights, um, almost 1,600 acres of land. And what we're doing there is conserving that property, working with the Siskiyou Land Trust and a conservation buyer, and dedicating 2.6 uh, CFS of water into the stream, which will result in a 20% increase in flow at a critical time wow. when the fish need it. And, and, and that's, a, that's a great example of marrying the work down at Blue Creek and getting these fish up into the system and making sure that the habitat is intact at the end destination 
where they need it. And then if you jump all the way into the top of the system up at, at the Williamson, where we work on a, uh, we just recently completed a conveyance to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in addition to the Klamath Marsh National Wildlife Refuge, 2,200 acres along three miles of the Williamson River. Uh, and this also includes very senior water rights. And while the fish don't make it all the way up there, uh, dedicating those water rights in stream and allowing that water to flow down through the system aids these fish and their life history stages downstream. And so it's picking all these really strategic spots within the watershed where you can make the biggest difference to help restore and recover these runs and provide for their well-being. So, and, and that's, ahead, I'm Sue. sorry, ahead, just w- real well, um, I liken our work to lining up for a rapid. So our job is to get control of this property, have a, have a conservation vision for it, find the funding for it, and then put it in the hands of the long-term steward, ready to run the rapid. And then when it's in the hands of the long-term steward, there, these restoration act more or restoration activities can take place, and that's where some of um, of your uh, 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 some of the NGOs we all know and love, um, TU, uh, Cal Trout, um, lots of other uh, NGOs that are less well known, get a chance to put their oar in the water and and improve those habitats. Um, we have, uh, and, and in the case of the Williamson, there's probably going to be some rechannel, you know, uh, changing how the ditches work and, and, uh, and, and eliminating some of the irrigation channels, uh, really simple restoration stuff. And, uh, and on the, uh, right on the Oregon and Nevada border, uh, we're going to be starting a project. Uh, actually, we're going to buy it tomorrow. <laughs> we're going to buy, uh, this ranch on McDermott Creek, which uh, which flows into the Quinn River, and uh, and but it's the only place to recover Lahontan cutthroat trout, the, this particular regional species of Lahontan cutthroat trout. And so we're going to buy that ranch. We're going to permanently protect it. But then our partners are going to come in after it's permanently protected in the hands of a long-term steward, and they're going to do the hard work of actually restoring that stream. So it's kind of a one-two punch. Sue, um, <clears throat> I'm going to say cow trout, and then I want you to say, give them a point. Just say what comes to mind I, I when you it. think of cow trout. I got it. Uh, well, cow trout uh, and Western Rivers worked together on Goose Creek, and, uh, and it was a, a tr- terrific partnership uh, between cow trout uh, Smith River Alliance and Western Rivers, where we protected a 10,000 acre watershed, a tributary to the Smith River, and a heck of a great stream to fish. Um, and Cal Trout did a lot of the heavy lifting for uh, advocacy on that project. And when you say Cal Trout, I think of good friends and good guys who are doing great things for rivers in California. A lot of my very best friends uh, are huge cow trout supporters, and um, and we 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 think I think so very highly of them and hold them in high regard. Sue, question for you. So I've I've just been listening, and you, it sounds like you guys are also 
kind of like and to use a real uh, like a you know a home building analogy you guys are kind of like the the developer where the ngo is the builder is that is that kind of is that accurate or you guys come in you take care of the macro problem and then they come in and take care of the micro problem you know that could you know that that is a uh, a pretty good analogy um you know one the the, the uh the thing that we see, we some, we hear a lot from foundations in particular. Yeah. We don't fund acquisition; we only fund restoration. And and we're we're always incredulous because we're like, but you can't do restoration without acquisition because yeah. because the and and the and the real gap in that is the permanence. Like like if you can restore something that you know is going to be managed for conservation forever it's so much more meaningful than if you're going to plant trees on a private individual's property so it'll be shaded until they decide to cut them you know it's just you you just don't have control nobody wants to help their buddy restore their car because they don't own the car at the end of the day you know it's like the guy that you restored the car for gets the car that's right yeah. So um, that's right. So it, when you you guys you guys uh, let's just I want to get back to this macro micro analogy. So you guys I, I want to think about like goals for a project, right? So when you guys go in, you do your deal, you do the real estate deal. The, the keys are handed to you. You bring in one or more NGOs. Do you guys do you guys give them like operational goal goals and then let them work out the the milestones do you just say here's what we're, here's here's the here's the metrics that we're, we want to hit when this project's done or do you let them figure that one out and you guys move on to the next project does that make sense it does make sense and uh and so really i the the vocabulary i use for that is that um is that we need to have a management vision that's memorialized in something uh enforceable mm-hmm and so, uh, so we might not put a metric in and tie someone's hands because, as you know, uh, before we put woody debris in streams, we took woody debris out because it was the belief then that woody debris wasn't good for fish. And, and every decade or two, our optics on what is important for a healthy stream shifts. And so, mm-hmm. so we, we stay at a slightly higher level and insist that it be managed by, for a particular set of um, goals. And those goals are going to be pretty high level. You know, you can't do things that are detrimental. You can't yeah. um, to, to species, but we don't prescribe what you have to do. Because we, we leave that. Because, because shit happens and, and operationally things change environmental or otherwise. Right. Right. And, and when, when we're, we're not, you know, our horizon isn't 10 years or it isn't 50 years, it's forever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, that's a hard thing to peg. And so you really just have to leave it at a level that's going to be enforceable for that same, uh, period. And, and, you know, when it, if, if a judge looks at your document and they say, well, I don't know, that doesn't apply today. Well, managing the landscape for the benefit of fish and wildlife applies forever mm-hmm. we're not telling you what your management tool is we're saying you have to do it so that's 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 uh that's how we approach it and our funding sources um usually have uh restrictions that accompany it so when land goes to a long-term steward 
it's it comes to them via these uh, funding sources, and those. Uh, so whether it, you know if if we're using funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and conveying it to a land trust, there's a whole long easement that says exactly what that land trust can and can't do. It doesn't tell them how to manage their land. It doesn't have those kinds of metrics. Yeah, but it tells them what they can and can't do. Have you guys ever had to claw back? A, a clawback, uh, you know, and something you gave an NGO because they just weren't executing. We haven't, and knock on wood. Well, but, but it's also well, it's also because we're very careful uh, about how we do things, and uh, and we have uh, a stewardship program where we go back on a regular cycle every five seven years, depending on the project, and check in on it, and okay. uh, and we we. We, if we see things that could be better, you know, we'll follow up with the long-term steward and and talk to them about that. But uh, but to date, uh, with the exception of maybe you know, there's been a little bit too much trash in some of the city parks we've done. Uh, it we've had a it's it's been a, a flawless record. That's cool. You, and you we, just brought up yeah, we, really yeah. something I've been just sitting here thinking about because you, yeah. you uh, Josh, you mentioned the Scott River and adding you know twenty CFS. I I think that was the number to the the system, which is two point six. Two okay. Um, so we you, wish it was twenty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys, you guys do so much work on some of these projects, and then you got the Yahoo next door that's still you know, diverting water or still, you know, mismanaging his land that has a negative impact on you. So, I, and so a story there, but it also makes me think about, um, you know, you guys start at the headwaters, right. And, and you're purchasing and acquiring this land at the headwaters. And then you have the estuaries all the way down at the bottom. But what about all that stuff in the middle and what you just said Sue, about the trash and things, this is where I'm, I'm leading because, you know, Big Chico Creek example is our is one of our favorite streams here locally, and and I've been fishing it since I was a kid. Anadromous, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, an, it's an anadromous water yep. watershed, and and I've yes, been fishing it, it since I was a kid. And you said some things earlier that you know, you, you, all the other th- impacts, that you, not just for the fish, but you know, for example, they allow hunting on that on that in that area, right? Which is kind of unique because the Native Americans did it, and so why not allow people to come in and hunt it as well, which I thought is pretty, pretty cool, but still like there's all this middle water, all this stuff in the middle that is being just impacted severely by, um, trash and pollution. And, you know, we're seeing it in, in horrible ways. Like I'll go to the mouth of big Chico Creek after high water and the mouth of it is just chocked full of flip flops, lighters, needles, trash bags, backpacks, I mean, I could keep going. I mean, I, I've seen it firsthand. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like the stuff, like and it's, it's hard to wrap our head around locally. And it's like, so I, I guess my question is, is what, what can be done? Like, what can we do or what advice do you have for us to, to improve on, on those? On that? Well, Josh, you want to start and I'll finish. Yeah, yeah. there's, you know, this uh, somewhat goes back to, um, how selective we are and where we work and and we don't typically work inside of, of cities. Big Chico Creek's an interesting system that it starts in a more pristine area and then flows through a small city and then meets the Sacramento in, in more of a agricultural area. And where we focused was on the, the, the portions upstream of, of Chico where we, we, we could really make an impact 
ecologically. And in terms of wanting to see good things done on an, on an urban stretch of, of a stream, then I think that's really something that you want to you wanna have citizens motivated to do that and take care of that body of water. Yeah. And, there, you know, it's uh, so. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say there are. But the problem is there's there's not enough political willpower to to actually m- enforce some of the if we're just going to use like our park as the example, um, the, the, the no camping thing in the parks is not really enforced if it, it's given lip service. But when it comes down to it, brass tacks, it's not being enforced. Um and it's just a political hot button. You know, you cannot win on either side of that argument. So that's that's the problem we see locally as being the yeah. key issue for for our particular little watershed here and why it's why it gets hammered. But um yeah, so anyway, go go ahead, Josh. Well, and oh, actually got can I take that or or is that sure. okay? Uh well, because uh Big Chico is a creek is a really great example of um our brand of conservation doesn't solve all problems. And because we, uh, we created the big Chico preserve, which I didn't even know until going going into this meeting. I guess I did in the back of my mind, but I didn't really, yeah, it just surfaced. We did. We did. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, and we did that in conjunction with the university. Did, did there. Ken Grossman have his hands on that? I know he's, you know, our hometown hero in some ways. And, and he, you know, obviously has a passion for that Creek. Did he have his, did he have, some he help? did, he yeah. did. Well, I, I almost think that's how we met Ken. Cause Ken's been on our board and he's on our board now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, he was, he was, uh, deeply involved in, in that project with us. Mm-hmm. And as you know, um, Ken and his wife, Katie, have a ranch upstream of Big Chico Creek mm-hmm. Preserve. And yep. actually, they have a super cool salmon hole mm-hmm. uh, that's phenomenal. The salmon just circle in there. It's amazing. Uh, but, but in creating Big Chico Creek Preserve, uh, we, Bidwell Park uh, is probably the largest urban park with the big Chico Creek preserve addition. And, uh, and we were thrilled that we were able to do that. And, and, uh, and it's actually one of our only projects where we, um, there isn't unfettered public access. You need to, uh, go, uh, get permission and then you can go in. Anyone can go in, but it's, but it's controlled access. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and hunting is allowed there, uh, because that was one of the, um, fundamental compromises that were important to the community that they be able to allow that hunting was continued to be allowed. And again, with controlled access and permits. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my point is um, that is, was a critical uh, conservation effort for the stream. And it's a phenomenal resource. I think for you, you probably enjoy it more than I get to <laughs> uh, for the community, but it can't solve the problem. Uh, the of you know the urban ills that come with uh, streams running through urban areas, and that those problems exist, they need to be addressed. And uh, and the one the place where we feel like we play a role is helping people understand the importance of clean, healthy rivers. Because if people have a place to go to the river, that's that that you know, where they can replenish their souls, if you will, uh, they'll, they'll, they're, they'll become stewards. 
they'll they'll appreciate the river in a way they maybe never have. And so maybe you'll end up with people who will begin to enforce that and help the political powers that be um, enforce the rules that surround um, use in urban areas. It's it's a vexing problem, and it's just something that has to be tackled uh, one day at a time. Yeah, Chad, Chad and I wanted to, you know, just put signs up. You, when, what you're saying is basically there needs to be more education. There needs to be, people need to be, you know, they need to know about how precious this resource is and how to protect it and to be stewards of the land. And so Chad and I, one of our projects we wanted to work on, and I guess we still are in the middle of, is just putting up signs, you know, like big yeah. metal signs that are, you know, laser cut out and that just kind of educate people like, Hey, there's, this is a fishery, you know, this is a, a, a habitat for a really important species of salmon. Um, you know, please, you know, leave it as you found, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, but, I think it's a neat idea. I think it's a neat idea, but you know, um, what I think is if we get more people to go out and fish, we'll get, we'll have more conservationists. Right. I mean, it's it's really funny, but but it it could be just as simple as that. Like right. help people get introduced to the sport. It doesn't have to be fishing. It could be hunting. It could be um, rafting. But but get people out in a way that helps them move their needle for to become more of a conservationist. Yeah, we so, we, we talked to Eli about possibly managing BCCR as as kind of like how the McLeod nature conservancy does where it's 10 anglers day and you have to, you know, make reservations. Um, that may be a way to get more anglers on that water to appreciate this, this particular watershed, because the problem, the problem is where we have, where the, you know, the, the average Joe has access to this watershed and where they're going after, um, you know, salmonids is, is pretty, it, it's a pretty finite amount of space you have. And it's also very treacherous to get, get through. So accessibility is tough, but actually it's easier to fish it on the, on, on the property than it is, you know, in the lower park region. So that might be yeah. something to think about. I don't know pr- fishing pressure wise, how that would work out. I think it would be okay if it was all catch and release, obviously, um, but that might be a way to kind of like get the local community a little more high visibility in what's going on, or at least appreciate the upstream piece and want to make a difference on the, on the lower section that we see every day. I liked your idea of the QR codes too, just on the sign, you know, like having a QR yeah. code that people could scan That's and, a great and, idea. and get more information mm-hmm. on that tip, you know, that body of water or who's sponsoring it or what, yeah. you know, okay. yeah. Cause the, I mean the, the, the cleanups are, are good, but it's not, it's not, addressing the problem and i think sue i agree with you like you i think a lot of people at least me i mean i i started doing this podcast from a very very selfish place and kind of turned into a conservationist over time right and right i think a lot of people that get into the sport don't get into the sport because they want to be conservationists they want to just catch fucking fish and then you and then as soon as you make the connection that my my ability to catch fish is connected to the health of this ecosystem that I'm standing in. Then you start caring about the ecosystem. You bet. You and bet. It, I it think comes from a very selfish how, place. But that's okay. Yeah, totally. That's absolutely okay. Yeah. And uh, and you know how do you, how do any of us learn anything? It's it's yeah. experiential. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. Hey, I just want to do a shout out to for um, Ken Grossman and Sierra Nevada Brewing Company because you know they in your community, but but nationally are uh, tremendous supporters of conservation and land conservation. And uh, and Big Chico Creek is a is a backyard project, but uh, but their support is. Um, is strong and consistent, and I just uh, I think we're lucky to have them as uh, supporters. Yeah. Is there anybody else you want to mention while you're at it, Sue? There's just people that maybe get missed and and all this you know action that you, and all the great things you do. Is there some other plugs that you want to make? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Just take well, the time I think to do it real quick. We have five well, listeners, that. so you know, well, <laughs> knock, knock yourself out. Well, what? <laughs> um, well, you know, every one of our projects. Uh, isn't done in a vacuum. We we always work with partners in the area or with NGOs that have similar interests to uh, to put these projects together. And so I mentioned a couple, you know, with Cal Trout and with Smith River Alliance for Goose Creek. We worked with North Coast Regional Land Trust uh, on our Lower Deer Creek Falls project. We worked with... Um, uh, Big Sur Land Trust and the, uh, oh my gosh, I can't think of the name of the Condor organization with Little Sur. Uh, Josh, help me. Oh, sorry. Uh, the the, the uh, Condor Conservancy, they, they've got a longer name than that. I'm blanking too. It's okay. And, uh, but, but, you know, we have, we have, uh, it's, it takes a village to, to make these things happen. And California has a very capable uh, NGO community that are really making a difference on the landscape. So I just wanted to, I didn't want to let our time together go by without just, you know, making sure people understand um, the importance of all of these uh, nonprofits and the work they're doing for conservation. And, you know, I didn't mention TU and I should, because TU is a terrific organization, and they're and they they're doing a lot of work throughout the West. And we have a uh, our project on McDermott Creek up at the Oregon Nevada border will will be done in partnership with them, as is our project on uh, Antoine Valley Creek up in Washington State, uh, working with the Colville Tribe. And and so they uh, we just haven't had the good fortune of working with TU in California, but they're but they they certainly are an organization worth supporting as well. Yeah, they um, they just worked on a repairing a diversion dam on Deer Creek and you know so they they blocked off the the water and it was they were trying to save, you know, um lamprey eels and um the, any other species that was being trapped in there. Um so they they do do a lot. Um and we we try to have them on as much as possible to to talk about those projects. Um, and we have, yeah. we still have 20 minutes to, to talk about whatever you want. Cause after that, I got to go pick up, um, the, the two year old. So <laughs> <laughs> what, where do you guys want to go from here? Do you, you know, we, there are other local place that, um, we haven't really touched on, but maybe there's something else completely you guys want to talk about, but the South Fork of Antelope Creek. Um, I think that's a, you know, that's another one that kind of nobody really talks about and, it's funny because I saw that on this list, you know, prior to getting ready for this podcast. And um, when I drive over Antelope, I look at it and I'm like, gosh, it just looks like there's not a lot of water coming down that thing, you know. And I know all these anadromous streams that feed 
the sack are super important for the steelhead that use them to spawn, the salmon that are going in there, and, and obviously all the other different species that I'm not mentioning. Um, so maybe maybe talk a little bit about that because it sounds like you guys just recently worked on on that one. Yeah, and so Josh, I'd like you to do that, but would you also mention, um, you know, Peter Moyle, Dr. Peter Moyle, yes, uh, as uh, as you know, the guru of fisheries for California and, and probably you know beyond, and uh, and Peter spent his uh, life tromping around those Sierra Nevada streams, studying them and. And I'll tell you, he knows each and every one of them intimately. And um, and it's really fun when we mention a stream like South Fork Antelope Creek and Peter chimes in with how incredibly important it is. And, uh, and he, I think it was on the Gualala. What was, what's the Peter story from the Gualala, Josh? With the Gualala roach? Yes. The, 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 uh, the, the endemic Gualala roach. Uh, found, of course, nowhere else but in the Wallala River, and, and uh, Peter helped identify that. <laughs> well, so so when we're in our board meeting, right? We're in our board meeting. We're presenting the the project to our board, and and uh, and we're and Josh is listing all the important species for this project, and and Peter's like, well, don't forget about the Wallala roach, <laughs> and uh, and and he's he's just been our guru, and so when it came to South Fork Antelope Creek, he he was thrilled to see us working on this. And, and um, Josh was the project manager who did that project. And, and um, Josh, tell us about it. Yeah. And, and, and Antelope Creek is part of this great assemblage of these Sierra Nevada foothill streams that drain into the Sacramento, Big Chico, Deer Creek, Mill Creek, Butte Creek, Antelope Creek. And, and together they're so important for the uh, recovery of upper Sacramento salmon and steelhead. Um, and, and you're right that a lot of them have some degraded reaches along their lower stretches, and, and Antelope Creek is, is no exception there. And there's also really pristine habitat in the upstream reaches. And we were fortunate that we were able to acquire about 1,200 acres along two and a half miles of South Fork Antelope inside the Lassen National Forest. And this is just upstream from the state wildlife area. And, uh, and this was a, a piece of property that had been owned by a family that actually used to ride their horses over from Chico uh, to vacation over here and, and let their horses uh, graze. And, and uh, they got to a point where the property didn't make sense for them anymore and they were going to sell it. And it, we had the chance to, to work with the family before they sold it to someone that would have carved it up into a bunch of ranchettes. And we are successful in conveying that property to the Forest Service, utilize, utilizing funding from the Land and Water Conservation Fund that who had mentioned earlier, protecting a, a two and a half mile pristine reach of South Fork Antelope that has some giant old growth ponderosa pines along it. And, and it's not just a fisheries project, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot of dual benefits and, and there's incredible biodiversity on this property, as evidenced by the fact that, that OR7, California's first wolf in decades and decades, right. um, spent uh, an entire winter denning on this property and, and foraging across the property. When, uh, when you guys get a property from, from a, you know, privately owned party, like the ones you're describing, is there these folks in terms of their, their, their moral code or their ethical code? Is there, is there a piece of, is there, is philanthropy, philanthropy kind of baked into their kind of worldview? 
Does, is that why no. They're, they're no? Okay. No. Well, I should say uh, it, it's everything, you know, because we buy from willing sellers and they, uh, so it ranges from people who just want to get a top dollar for their property. Yeah. Uh, all the way to, uh, to people who have a shared vision. But, um, but really at the end of the day, it's all business and, um, and people are selling their land cause they want to sell their land and cause they want to get out of it and put their money somewhere else. Uh, yeah. so and and that's really where uh, where our business model uh, succeeds is you know we are uh, first and foremost uh, we're conservationists but we're business people and we uh, we give people a business like transaction because uh, people can't sit around and wait two years or three years or four years for some public funding entity to cough up some funding. Uh, you know, we, we go in, we make a, a deal, uh, and we agree on a purchase and, uh, and then we buy it. There's no pussy putting around. And, uh, and that's, that's what, um, sellers need. Uh, and, and then there's the rare entity that says, I don't, I don't mind waiting because I like what you guys are doing, but mostly it's just a straight on arm's length. Uh, business transaction. Yeah, okay. we yeah, had thanks. we had Peter Moyle on the show a little while ago, and he's he's fantastic. We I we need to get him on the show just multiple times here in the near future. Just I just to, want to just, do. You know what I want to do is I want to do one with him on the bait fish in the Sacramento River and go through the life the history of each one, one of them. Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd be probably. Oh, the that best would to be do. so great. Yeah, Peter. Well, Peter is is a gem. You know, he's, he's one of a kind yep. and, uh, yeah, yeah, I sure hope you do it. Well, and, and same with you guys, we would love to have you back on the show and, and hear more about some of these projects and, and kind of, you know, where you're at and, and where you're heading. And, um, just, I, 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 this was great. I learned a ton and, and I know our listeners did. Um, so how, how can people help, you know, that are out there listening? How, how can they help? Uh, maybe WRC or some of these other organizations. Yeah, are you guys like donor micro donation kind of funded, or is it, well, or they, is it mostly they, big big deals? They do have a, a link on their website yeah. that you can go purchase. Um, you know, you donate so much, and then you get some items back. But okay. um, go ahead, Sue. You, you, you bet. Well, um, well, so uh, just at, at the highest level, we're funded um, fr- from multiple sources. You know, whether it's from our land transactions or whether it's from foundations. But really, we depend on individual donors most of all. And, uh, hmm. and, but there's lots of ways to help, uh, Western Rivers. Um, and, and money's one of them. But, uh, but, you know, signing up, uh, to get our newsletter, you know, go to our website and sign up and, um, and just learn more about what we're doing. We're likely working on a river you love. And, uh, and tag us. Uh, when you on your social media, when you take a really cool picture of a fish or of a river, um, tag Western Rivers. We'd love it because uh, for us, um, amplifying our message through your social media is uh, is a huge gift and helping just spread the word. And and of course, you know, give, but you know, give to Western Rivers, give to TU, give to Cal Trout, uh, but but organizations that are doing this kind of work. Um, 
need your support. And whether it's $5 or $5,000, every dollar matters. And, uh, and so I, I just encourage you to, to, to think about doing that. And, um, and I know if you go to our website, you'll see that, you know, you can like do a birthday fundraiser on Facebook. I mean, there's lots of fun, fun ways to help the organizations you care about. And so, so get involved and, and it's easy to do. You can do it sitting at home on your, you know, uh, on the website and, uh, and you'll, you'll make a real difference. Very cool. I'm sitting here looking at the report from the field, uh, Western Jervance Conservancy 2018 to 2019, and it's fantastic. I mean, I, I, I'm going to probably try to read the whole thing again tonight. I mean, it's just great pictures, um, great stories. Um, so is, is that is stuff like that going to be in the, the newsletter that goes out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you know, Josh and I are, we're so down in the weeds. Like we just love what we do and we're, we're, you know, we love talking about deals and all that kind of stuff. But our but our newsletter um, is it does a great job, like with pictures. You can really see what we're doing and, and the stories that go along with it. And uh, and yeah, the report from the field. I like to pick it up and read it. It's so beautiful and and inspiring. If I do say so ourselves, you know. And I don't see a single ad either, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> No, no ads for us. So, but you know, you guys, it's so fun talking to you guys and hanging out. And I really appreciate having the opportunity to, to talk about Western rivers and, and Josh and I, uh, we, we feel lucky going to work every day to get to do what we do and, uh, and what makes it worth it. Uh, in, in addition to just knowing we're, we're having the impact we're having is, is having people like you appreciate it and, and, and recognize the importance of our work as well. So thank you. No, I've been enjoying Thanks, the outdoors on, on hunting and fishing my whole life. And, and after, you know, doing this podcast with um, Chad, I, I realized just how much I don't know. You know, I've, I've learned so much in the last three years um, interviewing folks like you, and it's, it's just been fantastic. And, and yeah. I, I think we're hopefully bridging that gap of, edu- you know, educating people and trying to do it just the best way we can to, you know, to improve on all yeah. these fisheries and the places that we love to go and pictures that we like to look at and um so thank you so much i mean um, chad and i got to experience the salmon river a couple years ago the middle fork of the salmon on that 100 mile stretch which was an amazing experience we fished we got to go up and fish with john mcmillan um on the hoe this this uh last right before covid hit and and Mm um and so anyways it's uh yeah, I just thank you guys well, for everything that you do. Thank you for all the work that you guys put in, including those people so, in the back that we ha- that haven't been mentioned. Thank you. Thank you. Well, and you know the hoe is our project and that we protected the hoe from the park to the park. And uh, and that's that was probably our first fish marbled murelet project that we ever did. So... I'm glad you got a chance to go up there. It's an amazing, amazing stream. Definitely. I want to uh, yeah. also thank Cal Trout for the continued support. We really appreciate it. And also uh, Fish Bio for getting us the roof over our heads to which we bring this podcast to you guys. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Sue and Josh, for your time. Um, stay safe out there. And, and hopefully we can have you back on or somebody from your team back on to talk about more uh, exciting projects in the future. That'd be great. Thanks for making this possible, you guys. You're, you're awesome. 
Thank Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Josh, for real. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right. Well, go pick up your two-year-old, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before the, the missus gets mad. <laughs> if you guys like this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast app. And that we, is do all. we still have some hats Hats for sale? Yeah, there's online? hats. There's yep. hats. Yep. yep. Go, go buy a hat. Yep, yep. All right. Thanks, guys. Until next okay, week. Okay. Take care. Bye. 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 Special thanks to our sponsors. Without them, this show would not be possible. Like this episode? Leave a review. Grab some gear or become a Patreon supporter. Links are in this episode's description. This show is part of the Barbless Podcast Network. For sponsorship inquiries or general questions, please email fishon at barbless.co. No better, fish better. This has been an AMP Audio Production.